Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Well, you've tuned in to the Beeson Podcast on that one week of the month when we focus on a lecture. And today's lecturer is Dr. Kathleen Nielsen. Kathleen serves as Director of Women's Initiatives for the Gospel Coalition. She holds the M.A. and Ph. degrees in literature from Vanderbilt University and a B.A. from Wheaton College. That's where I met her when we both shared a tenure together as a member of the board of Wheaton College. She's also the author of Living Word Bible Study. She speaks all over the country at women's conferences, studying the Bible. She has a heart for students, and her husband, Dr. Neil Nielsen, was president of Covenant College for 10 years in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and he now leads an enterprise developing resources for Christian schools around the world. Wonderful ministry God has given to both of these uh, dedicated Christian leaders. We asked Kathleen to come to Beeson Divinity School several years ago and to participate in a series we were doing on the Nicene Creed. And we asked her to talk on He Came Down from Heaven, that one clause that refers to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Down to Earth is the title of this lecture. You're going to be blessed by listening to our friend, Dr. Kathleen Nilsson. Good morning. It is a joy to be here with you this morning, to be here with friends and brothers and sisters worshiping together in this place. I'm honored to be here. The truth is that you have an English teacher standing before you today rather than a preacher. The truth is also that this English teacher has often thought that it would be lovely to address a seminary audience. I've always enjoyed speaking to college students or to grad students or to various conference participants, but I've secretly thought that seminary students, more than many other groups, need to be inspired with a love of literary texts. A young pastor friend of mine not long ago told me that he had come to realize he didn't really love poetry or reading poetry, and so as he was coming to terms with the fact that a huge portion of the scriptures is given to us in poetry, and as he was realizing that God must love poetry to inspire so much of it, he was being convicted that he needed to learn to read and love poetry in general and scriptures, poetry in particular, as poetry. For, of course, paying attention to the poetic elements is not a luxurious extra. It's one of the most basic parts, isn't it, of our reading and understanding and communicating the word. Well, this pastor friend bought a Norton's anthology of poetry and reads a few poems every evening before going to bed. How wonderful is that? That will affect his understanding of his love of, his preaching of Isaiah and the Psalms and on and on. English teachers, you know, tend to be a little compulsive about words. In the interest of full disclosure, I'll share with you a silly little poem 
I wrote for my pastors back at College Church in Wheaton a number of years ago. Uh, The only footnote you need in order to get this poem is one telling you that my husband's name is Neil. The poem is called To My Pastors. To my pastors whom I love and much esteem, you who preach from whom amazing sermons stream, Would you entertain a small respectful mention of a matter that has come to my attention not just once but on quite numerous occasions as I've sat and worshipped with the congregations listening every Sunday to your wise orations? As I give my full attention to your words, please don't tell me you think grammar's for the birds. There often comes a phrase or two I must affirm that makes me wiggle, squiggle, flinch, or sometimes squirm, and that phrase sounds something like, as it goes by, God's given many gracious gifts to you and I. Since you and I are objects of a preposition, may I suggest in this objective situation that you use the objective me instead of I, to you and I will not grammatically fly. So, as subject, I and he and they and we do the job and fit the bill quite accurately. But as objects, me and him and them and us hit the spot and quiet an English teacher's fuss. Thank you humbly for your kind consideration. You deserve the very highest commendation for so many pastors in this world there be. But you're the best, according to Neil and me. The point is that words are important. So let's spend our few minutes this morning paying close attention to every word in the creedal phrase given to us for our consideration today. Certainly those who composed this creed discussed and debated carefully every word of that original Latin. If you've served on a committee charged to create a mission statement or a public statement of some sort, you know the heated debates over words that take place in such contexts. And it's clear that the fourth century debates in that Council of Nicaea were fiery as the very foundations of Christian doctrine were being solidified. We pay respect to the work carried out centuries ago by looking carefully into every word. We pay respect to this cloud of witnesses, and I know Athanasius is up there somewhere. But even more, by taking in every word of this phrase, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven, we will be taking in once again the huge universe-transforming truth of the coming down of God to us in Christ Jesus. Taking in this truth, or even beginning to take in this truth, we take into our very lives a bit deeper grasp, not just of God's coming down, but also of the rhythm of that coming down as it is lived out in us who believe. I'd like to start at the end of the phrase with the words, from heaven, partly because those words unleash the meaning of the others, and partly because starting there does reflect the shape of the scripture passage we read and heard from Philippians 2, which begins, High, 
high up in the heavens with God in the very form of God and then takes the dive down to the depths of the earth and even to the deepest depths of death on a cross before rising up again to exaltation and glory. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 draws right before our eyes this shape of a V, right? Moving from high down to low and the lowest low and then back up to the highest high and then and closing it all in glory at the end. The creedal phrase we are considering is all about the left side of that V, isn't it? The coming down. It isn't even so much about the bottom of that V, the incarnation itself. That will come in the next phrase, which is all about the wonder of the incarnation. I would like to be here for that chapel. We understand this coming down most profoundly when we see the point from which God came down. He came down from heaven. Well, of course he did, you say. We know that's true. But we know it uh, rather abstractly sometimes, I think. I've been studying the book of John these past months. I noticed more this time round with John how often Jesus keeps talking about heaven and about his Father in heaven. It is a vivid, concrete reality to him. He talks about it just like a person in love tends to talk about the visit he had last weekend to the home of the person he's in love with. He's just full of it. Well, Jesus is full of heaven. He's just come from there. He, he knows it's right there and real in a way we usually don't. Of course, that's because it's invisible to us right now. We know it's there, but because we can't see it, it's not real to us, sort of like the interior of the womb was for years before we began to be able to see into it by means of modern technology and began to glimpse the actual forms of babies swimming around in there. Sometimes scripture gives us glimpses into heaven. You remember that scene from Genesis 28 where Jacob in his dream is allowed to see heaven opened up and the angels of God ascending and descending on that ladder that comes down and the Lord himself standing at the top speaking to him. Jacob got to glimpse it. You remember Stephen in Acts 7, right before he was stoned, gazing, it says, right into heaven and crying out, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He got to glimpse it right before he got to enter it. But most of the time, we don't get to see it yet. We're asked to believe to take the word into our hearts and turn it into belief, faith that these words about things we can't see are words about things that are real, true, actually right there, even though invisible. C.S. Lewis, in his little book, Reflections on the Psalms, talks about words, he talks about poetry in particular as a little incarnation giving body to what had been before invisible and inaudible. 
heaven as it's fleshed out for us in the word is always up, isn't it? Jacob saw a ladder up there coming down to earth. Stephen gazed up and saw. Jesus ascended up into the clouds, into heaven. Paul talks about being caught up to the third heaven. Scripture's pictures of heaven make us look up to the Most High God because heaven is above all the place where God dwells, the place from which he rules over all. When we sing the doxology, we should, in effect, realize our lowness. When we sing the words, praise him, all creatures here below, And we should then almost literally, I think, look up to the reality of heaven in the very presence of God when we sing those words, praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Heaven is really there. And it changes our whole consciousness to be aware of and to look up to that invisible reality. It also changes our conception of what it means that God came down from heaven. To look up to the reality of heaven is to begin to be able to imagine what it meant for Jesus to stand on the edge of it, so to speak, being there with God, being God, being the who or the he in our phrase for today, whichever translation you have, the the who at the very beginning, which you defined last time when you considered the previous phrase, God of God. Light of light, very God, a very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. That one, that one way up there, high and exalted, but then making that dive down from those heights. Standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon gives only the tiniest Pictures of the earth from a spaceship give only the tiniest hint. The words from heaven should dizzy us the more we think about them, if we truly begin to take them in. And so we come to the words, came down. That down, of course, is most fully explained by the words from heaven. We don't have a clue what it means to come down. Jesus does. Paul in Philippians gets at it, doesn't he, in this famous kenosis passage, this emptying in which Christ Jesus made himself nothing. I won't venture to join in all the theological controversies surrounding this word, but I would suggest that looking up to the heights where Jesus began helps point us to the meaning of the emptying. Not, of course, that Jesus emptied himself of any of his divinity, but rather that he emptied himself, all that he was, by taking that leap down into the very flesh and earth made by his own hand, far down. The creed says it so beautifully when it simply says he came down. Last week for a Bible study, I was studying Joshua 5, in which Joshua, right before the Battle of Jericho, you remember, lifted up his eyes and looked, the text says, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. 
Joshua immediately asks this clearly divine visitor, are you for us or for our adversaries? Which is an understandable question. We want God on our side, right? Whether we're Republican or, Republican or Democrat, we're interested in having God on our side. I want God on my side when I'm having an argument with my husband. But you know the response that came to Joshua. No. Which probably meant something like, wrong question. And then here's what this man says to Joshua. No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Aren't those amazing words? Those words show the very dive we're talking about. First, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. That's how high up this man is. As high as you can get, not just on earth, but in heaven. But then the words, now I have come. Oh, the, the mercy of this dive down. The commander of the Lord's army came down to Joshua in person. What mercy in this pre-incarnate figure, a man, the text calls him, standing there before Joshua, talking to him. The point is not which side he's on. The point is for Joshua to see who he is and that he has come down to his people. The ultimate point is for Joshua to take off his shoes and bow down. The words came down are indeed merciful words, beautifully merciful, beyond our understanding merciful. They remind me of nights in the house where I grew up, which was kind of a split-level house. And for us, it was truly split between the adult and the guest quarters uh, on the upper level and the kids' quarters on the lower level. When my sister and I were teens, and we hit those years when we stayed up at night much later than our parents, often with groups of friends downstairs. Sometimes at night we'd hear a call from above, and it would be my father's voice asking us to keep it down down there. But sometimes if it got really late, and if we were especially loud, or if it was just absolutely time to break it up and go to bed, my father would come down my father, who was a quite gentlemanly and reserved seminary professor by day, would, in his bathrobe and tousled hair, come down the stairs into the territory of his teenage daughters and ask us to be quiet. If we were sick, he would always come down and check on us. My mother was there, but my father, for some reason, always came down in that same rumpled robe and tousled hair. He wouldn't just call. He got out of bed and he came down. Came down is active, isn't it? Jesus wasn't just sent. He embraced his coming and he came. He made himself nothing and took on the form of a servant. Uh, former pastor Kent Hughes, whom I mentioned earlier, is the best of just about anyone I know at making vivid that picture, that moment of divine dialogue in which Jesus stood on the high edge of heaven and looked out over the universe and spoke those words to his father, which appear in Hebrews 10, but which include a paraphrased quotation from Psalm 40, 
Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, the son says. And he goes on to say, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. Jesus, from the heights of heaven, on the brink of the incarnation, with his father, looks out and embraces his full, active obedience to the word his father has declared concerning his coming down. Here I am, I've come to do it, he says. And then he takes the dive down. And the word was made flesh. But you'll get to that part with the next phrase of the creed. We're looking at the dive, the coming down from heaven and at, at how amazing and beautiful it is. Pictures and dramatizations can't capture it, but pictures can help, can't they? The poet Gerard Manley Hopkins pictured it through a bird in a poem he called The Windover, in which he described seeing a glorious falcon one morning sweeping and swooping high in the sky, and it just pulls his heart up to yearn for the heights of heaven and for God himself. But then listen as the poem captures the dive down with the crucial word buckle, and listen for the beauty that comes out of this dive, the windover to Christ our Lord. I caught this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of daylight's dauphin, dappled dawn drawn falcon, in his riding of the rolling level underneath him steady air, and striding high there how he rung upon the rein of a wimpling wing in his ecstasy, then off, off, forth on swing, as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow bend, the hurl and gliding rebuffed the big wind, my heart in hiding stirred for a bird, the achieve of the mastery of the thing. Brute beauty and valor and act, oh, air, pride, plume, here, buckle. And the fire that breaks from thee then, a billion times told, lovelier, more dangerous, oh, my chevalier. The poem does not end there. It's a sonnet, and I read you only 11 lines, the octave and the first half of the sestet. I won't read the last three, because to read them out loud takes, I think, a little bit of explication, but they are remarkable. As they come down for a landing in the closing lines to picture a plow making the dark soil, the dirt shine as it's plowed, and blue bleak embers in a fire falling and gushing forth gold. I encourage you to look that up and take time to savor that poem if you don't know it. It offers a powerful picture of what we're talking about here today. Finally and briefly, let's consider the words for us and for our salvation. This amazing picture of heaven and of Jesus' coming down from heaven had a purpose, and the creed states that purpose in two ways. Propter nos homines et propter nostrum salutem. 
I've always thought that this phrase had a beautiful rhythm in the speaking of it, even just in the English, who for us and for our salvation. I always enjoyed saying those words. But why put it in two parts? Why not just say for our salvation, which obviously implies for us, but the church fathers separated out the theological part from the personal part, didn't they? For our salvation is the theological way to say it. Jesus came down to accomplish as the perfect sacrifice on the cross the salvation which we, being sinful, could not accomplish for ourselves. So God could be at the same time both just and justifier. That's why he came to accomplish this salvation through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. He was the ladder that came down from heaven in order that he might himself be our way there. But how beautiful, don't you think, that the creed also states the purpose personally. He came down for us. He didn't come for an abstract theological reason. He came because he loved us. He knows his sheep and he came to rescue them. Here is the the truth to marvel at, not just that God himself came down to accomplish salvation, but that he came to do it for us. When we speak this creed and believe these words we speak, these are clearly not abstract truths to which we give assent. We are speaking of and heard by the Lord God we have come to know personally. If we dare to speak these words falsely without belief, I imagine that the universe is somehow jarred and that the one with whom these words should by faith connect is personally offended. Jesus didn't come like a king who parades royally through the streets, waving lovingly and generally at the crowds. Jesus came down and lived in the flesh with us. He knows his sheep by name, and we his people can know him back, this incarnate Son of God who brought down God's glory personally to all who put their faith in him. This is the wonder that we can and must take this creed and take our Savior utterly personally. To take these words personally involves not only a true believing in the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord, but also an internalization of this rhythm of coming down. We grow to see and love this dive, and it starts to happen in us, doesn't it? We truly take in his coming down. We start to live the theme of the whole Philippians 2 passage, which is that we believers should have the very mind of Christ who offers us the ultimate example of lowering himself for the sake of others. We start to experience the left half of the V for ourselves in a little way in Christ and through Christ. We pray for this kind of coming down in our hearts, the kind of humility that would count others as more significant than ourselves. The missionary poet Amy Carmichael wrote a poem called Moss, in which she prayed, We are too high. Lord Jesus, we implore thee, make of us something like the low green moss 
that vaunteth not a quiet thing before thee, cool for thy feet sore wounded on the cross. We ourselves live the coming down in a whole variety of ways, don't we? Just yesterday, I listened to a web link sent by a friend from Boston's Park Street Church in which Harvard Law Professor Bill Stuntz was telling the story of God's gifts to him during his cancer. Professor Stuntz is 51, which is young, and has been given 6 to 18 months to live. In an amazingly strong voice, there before the church congregation, Professor Stuntz not only vividly communicated the ugliness, the smell, the taste, the indignities of cancer and cancer treatment, but even more, he gave powerful testimony to the fact that the Lord Jesus, who came into this world of suffering all the way down to the worst suffering of the worst death, redeems every single moment of our suffering, having gone, having gone the way before us and for us. Bill Stuntz, it seemed to me as I listened, was, was calling up from the depths of a pit to his brothers and sisters gathered up there around the edge and telling them what he was finding down there, namely Jesus himself. Many of us here have perhaps called out with such a voice, or perhaps will. Many of us need to listen to such voices from the depths. If we position ourselves to listen, stop and lean down to listen, we in the church can hear and must hear each other's voices from the depths, voices of suffering, voices of the persecuted church around the world, voices of the martyrs represented here in this very chapel, voices that are singing to us the way of the cross. This is a way that comes down and serves and suffers on the way to glory. Some depths we would not choose, but God grants them in his unfathomable mercy. Other depths we can choose, the putting aside of my own pressing schedule to talk with a brother or a sister in need, the foregoing of a chance to insert vaunting or defensive words into a conversation, the choice to go or to live where I can minister, the willingness to perform enthusiastically some bothersome task, all with that spirit that would pray, we are too high, Lord Jesus, we implore thee, make of us something like the low green moss that vaunteth not a quiet thing before thee. The good news of the gospel is that the V-shape has not just the left side plummeting to the bottom point, which Jesus plumbed for us, but also the right side, the side of exaltation, of rising toward the heavens, the side Jesus has already ascended and along which we follow him to resurrected glory. The captain of the Lord's army who said to Joshua, I have come, 
prefigured not only the man of sorrows who would come down in the flesh, but also the glorious risen Christ who will come again, the one pictured in Revelation 19 with all the armies of heaven following him and with that sharp sword coming right out of his mouth, with which it says he will strike down nations. He has come, and he will come again to complete the shape of the gospel story for all God's people forever. But today, even as we know and affirm the whole shape of our salvation, which gives us such context and comfort and hope, for today, let us take in deeply this first coming down of the Lord Jesus from heaven for us and for our salvation. Because he took the form of a servant, we can follow him in that coming down low in service and in suffering, even today. What a coming down of God this was. What a plunge from the heights and fellowship of heaven. How marvelous that the Son of God came down. How we benefit from inviting these words deep into our souls as we believe in and bow down before the one who, for us and for our salvation, came down from heaven. Let us pray. Our Most High God, we look up to heaven and we wonder at your glory. Lord, as you are over all the universe which you created, in which you sovereignly rule. We humbly praise you for your coming down into this broken world of sinful people. Thank you that our Lord Jesus came down in the flesh to save us, to save even us, because you love us. Let us, we pray, take into our hearts your coming down for us, and until we see your face, we pray that you would help us follow the way of coming down, the way of the cross, the way to glory and exaltation found only in you and through you. We praise you in the name of our risen and glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.